This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Kahn, who is the author of today's article for discussion, Determinants of Intensive Care Unit Telemedicine Effectiveness in Ethnographic Study. Dr. Kahn is Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Health Policy and Management at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also the Director of the Program on Critical Care Organization and Management at the Charisma Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so we're going to talk about your your study, and I think um, maybe for the listeners, the best thing to start with is a description of what you did, because it's a qualitative study. I know people may be familiar with qualitative research, but I think they're probably less familiar with it, and you guys did a ton of work to, to gather the data that you then presented in this paper. So maybe you could walk us through what you did, and then I have some follow-up questions about that. Yeah, sure. It's my pleasure. So in, in thinking about, you know, what we did, it almost helps to take a step back and, and ask why we did it, because that sort of drives our methods. Um, I see telemedicine, as you know, is just this um, really pervasive and increasing over time delivery system for critical care. And we perceive it to be a technological innovation, right? It's, it's critical care that we're all used to, but provided remotely via cameras and monitors and remote electronic health records. But it's more than just a technological innovation. It's an organizational transformation, right? It changes the way we think about critical care. And in that context, um, it really can be adopted in a variety of ways. And that's reflected in the literature. The the hallmark of the, the studies, and there's a host of studies, probably now over 20, that look at is is ICU telemedicine an effective quality improvement tool? Does it improve survival in the ICU? And the hallmark is variability, and that some of these studies show that ICU telemedicine really works and can dramatically save lives. And in some of these other studies, it was a bit of a bust, and there was no change in in uh, risk-adjusted outcomes after adoption of telemedicine. And, we, we looked at that literature and we sort of asked ourselves, well, where do we go from here? You know, do we need more studies of effectiveness or do we really need to dig down deep into telemedicine programs to figure out what works and what doesn't? Why are some of these programs so effective and why are others a bust? And that's really the power of qualitative research. Uh, you know, unlike the numbers, qualitative research, talking to people, visiting programs, really allows a incredibly detailed, nuanced examination of how people interface with this technology. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I think it is interesting, this kind of landscape of mixed results about telemedicine. And I, I do think that this was really rich in terms of what you learn from talking and observing and seeing how things actually function. Um, before we dive into you describing exactly what you guys did, I want to, relevant to what you just said, I want to ask you one question. You guys, when you pick the places to go kind of embed yourself and really understand how that dynamic worked and what the structure was, chose models where there was a continuous care model of support 
in telemedicine as opposed to ones that um, had more periodic uh, consultation or where there was more decentralized systems. So before you even started into the process, you made that decision, and I'm curious about that decision up front. Yeah, it was difficult because there's lots of ways to deliver IT telemedicine, and telemedicine means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up having to, A, choose sort of the most pervasive method, right? The, the most common way people think about IC telemedicine is the dock in the box uh, in a room monitoring a bunch of ICU beds that are distant in geographic space. There's this other kind where sort of the doc is sleeping at home and might be awakened for a one-time interactive visit. That's sort of like stroke telemedicine in the emergency department um, is like that. There's some other models in the ICU that are more like that. The problem mm-hmm. is, you know, we, we, we couldn't put our arms around all of telemedicine. We had to make some restrictive decisions. And so we picked the most pervasive model. But we also picked the model that was probably the most um, transformative from an organizational perspective, meaning mm-hmm. where, where are we going to see meat about how to best design and deliver telemedicine services? It's probably not going to be in these sort of one-off interactions, not that they're not interesting, but where's where are we going to get the most juice for the squeeze, if you will? And that's why we ended up focusing on what might be called traditional IT telemedicine, but this sort of continuous monitoring, you know, eye in the sky type model, which is really, I think, also what people are kind of most interested in. I think so, too. I think you're right. Though I, I guess it seems to me there's still a lot of places that do tel- telemedicine in the evenings and not during the day. But all the models that you looked at were 24-hour telemedicine or well 24 hours in theory um most of them have are most intense at night right so Mm -hmm. the way the classic model that we visited is there's typically an administrator there during the day maybe one or two uh nurses or clinical pharmacists providing some modest documentation or administrative support but then the monitoring happens at night okay you know the real intensive physician monitoring so a lot of those, a lot of the programs we visited had that model. Some did have this 24-hour care. That was typically when they're focused on these really small ICUs that may or may not even have an intensivist during the day at all, right? So, like, gotcha. hoops, the tele-intensivist does rounds. It's more than just nighttime monitoring, which is one of okay. our interesting findings. It is just the breadth of the way people are using this technology. You know, it isn't yeah, no. just for nighttime monitoring, but it's for rounds. It's for quality improvement. It's a whole bunch of things. I think that's actually already interesting. I think a lot of us have kind of a, a single model of telemedicine in our our tele-ICU in our heads, and I think the diversity of approaches is already interesting. Um, I definitely have the kind of more traditional nighttime support model is the, the, what I think of when I think of tele-ICU, but I think reading the paper you start to see some of that breath. Anyway, I started with a question of what did you do, so let me let you tell us what you did, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so our goal was to was to crack open the the black box. So we identified some programs, and we identified them in a specific way using what is called in sociology and increasingly in implementation science a positive deviance study design, which is a study design that holds you can sort of learn about how to make a process better by going into the places that are doing it really well and contrasting those with places that are not doing it well. So we've done a study a few years back where we uh, looked on a national level about um, using Medicare claims data to identify programs, telemedicine programs that were highly effective based on 
a decrease in risk adjusted mortality and some that were ineffective based on no change in mortality or even an increase in mortality. And from among those two groups, we picked sites and we, we purposefully chose sites that we felt were either really amazing or really struggling. Mm-hmm. Then at each of those sites, we performed these four-day ethnographic site visits where a team of researchers flew out to these places and embedded themselves in the day-to-day care delivery, both in the target ICUs. So they showed up in the ICUs and they talked to the nurses. We did focus groups. We observed rounds. We observed care outside of rounds. And then also in the box, uh, what we were we call in the manuscript the telemedicine unit, where we sat there and watched the other side of the camera and watched these interactions, sometimes simultaneously, where so we would have a researcher on both sides of the camera mm-hmm. watching an interaction play out. And after observing these interactions, then we would talk to the providers and say, tell me about that interaction. Tell me what you, you felt. How did it work? How did it not work? How could it have been better? And at the high-performing sites, we, we asked for the secret sauce. We sort of said, what are you doing that makes this effective? And the data, which ended up in the form of, you know, words that we, um, you know, we transcribe all these interviews. Or first, we digitally record them, obviously, and then transcribe them. And then we yep. put them through the, the sausage machine of our qualitative data software and analyze it. Um, and through that sort of iterative review of the data, these themes emerge. And what these themes are, are the ways in which we believe telemedicine should be designed. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Did you go on any of these visits personally? So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I want to say yes. Um, this is actually interesting, and it's a, it's a good perspective for, for budding researchers, which is that I am a I, I'm a firm believer in the power of qualitative research uh-huh. um, in order to understand healthcare delivery. You know, what I do, everything I do as a, as a scientist and as a physician is about how do we target the organization of critical care to save lives. And um, But I'm trained as a quantitative researcher, like I'm a numbers guy. And so I sort of at once believe in the power of this stuff, but also recognize that it's not my skill set, right? It's a learned skill how to do this. So what I did was, because this was an NIH-funded study, so we were were grateful enough to receive the financial support of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the NHLBI, um, of the NIH, rather, uh, is hire professional qualitative researchers. So we had a PhD medical anthropologist. um, uh, Her name is Kimberly Rack. She's one of the authors on the study. She led all the site visits with a team of qualitative researchers. And this medical anthropology thing is a really cool idea, right? Like it's it's the idea of can we approach healthcare organization the same way we approach, um, you know, examining cultures in in the developing world or in Borneo, right? We we observe the the natives in action, if you will. And so her training in in medical anthropology is really what made this study so amazing, right? The other the other thing about me doing these visits is that I, as an intensivist, right, I kind of have my own biases, right? And, and mm-hmm. I used to work in a tele-ICU unit myself when I was a younger physician and was able to stay up all night, um, not able to do that as much anymore. But nor, I have my biases I. about, right? <laughs> um, I have my biases about how to do this well. And I didn't want to 
project my biases onto the data. And so I wanted the data to, to speak for themselves. And that was the beautiful thing about having Dr. Rack, um, our, our medical anthropologist, lead these site visits is that she doesn't have the same biases I have. She can really come with a fresh eye to, to figure out what's working and what's not working. Yeah, I think the the degree of rigor that you took in in doing this is is evident in the in the paper and the description of your process. And I totally get that. I asked partly because I think it would just be interesting to see, even if you weren't the one designing all the the process, which obviously you do want somebody whose expertise is this. I, I'll still commend you for being a numbers guy who thinks that qualitative research is a good good thing to do. And I think it revealed a, a rich array of of findings, which I think is awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the themes that you did identify, which I think were um, beneficial care delivery practices, leadership, perceived value, and then I think organizational characteristics. And then you had a bunch of sub-themes under each of those that were these kind of things that bubbled to the top as you analyzed it. Without going into all of them, I'm curious as you said, you came in with your own biases, right? You'd worked in a tele-ICU. You've thought about this a lot. You've studied it a lot. You must have come into it thinking, well, these are the things that make it work. Which of those things were was most surprising to you? Like what, what didn't you expect to see on that list? Or or was it all stuff that you already kind of thought was what you are going to find? Yeah, well, that was certainly the risk is, you know, and what, one of the things we didn't want to do as we set out is, you know, to come away with, the understanding that something like buy-in is important and it's important to get buy-in from the front staff because of course it's important to get buy-in. And what mm-hmm. we wanted is, is a step deeper than that, which is, which is if you want to improve buy-in, how do you do it? And mm-hmm. hopefully encounter some things that weren't obvious. You know, one of the things that I think we didn't, weren't quite expecting, but found was the importance of consistency of service, by which I mean that when the telemedicine or when the ICU clinicians, you know, the people in the in the front lines at the bedside, call mm-hmm. the telemedicine unit for help, they they need to get the same level of service every time. It's very very important that service be consistent, because the second you have one bad interaction, um, the whole thing goes off the rails. You right? lose people. Yep. Yeah. Think about that Coke machine, right? Every time you put a dollar in to the Coke machine, you want a Coke, and the first time it doesn't give you that Coke, you're not going to go back to that well. And if you even get one sort of surly person or one person who doesn't have the expertise that you need, right? If you're a neuro ICU and you're looking for some neurologic expertise, but you call the box and that person isn't, you know, of that ilk, then you're very much unlikely to call back. And what was also interesting was that was that was really a continuous loop because the other thing we found that was important was that the more you use it, the more you use it. And so consistency begets more use, which begets consistency, which begets more use, and you get this virtuous cycle of of use as opposed to the vicious cycle where you stop using it, and then once you stop using it, you're just increasingly less likely. And you're, yeah, you're just done with it. Yep. Yeah, you're done with it, which also then gets to this notion that we also found a, inter, about integration, which is the more tightly integrated services are, which in a way makes sense, but what was surprising to us was all the neat ways in which these programs, these successful programs found to integrate themselves, including being present on rounds, communicating on rounds, um, regular check-ins, really just putting in FaceTime, 
um, mm-hmm. not pretending that this thing is going to work just because we think it's a good idea, but, but putting in a lot of sweat equity into making sure that they're perceived as an important, um, an important service, if you will. Were a lot of those places in terms of that integration, was that daytime integration as well, or, or was it successful when there was integration through the evening and night alone? Was it was both. It was both okay. daytime and evening. And it often happened, integration was really supported by even non-clinical interactions, and mm-hmm. we found this to be very important, right, which is, um, you know, one thing we know, for example, already about how ICUs work is just the importance of trust. And when providers are communicating, you have to sort of believe in the, that the person's giving you the good information. And interpersonal relationships support trust, right? The better I know a consultant, the more likely I am to trust his or her recommendations. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem with ICU telemedicine because, you know, picture yourself as a nurse in a small ICU in a rural community needing help and you call the telemedicine unit and on the other end of the line is a person that you have never met. You don't know anything about their training. You might not even be able to see them because you might have a one-way camera. That's really hard. So integration is really supported by these even non-clinical interactions. Sometimes we call them ambassador programs. So some of these telemedicine units would have days where the telemedicine unit would sort of show up in the ICU and just as an informal meet and greet. Um, There was also training where they brought the nurses and other clinicians from the ICU telemedicine unit to the ICU, um, or excuse me, from the ICU to the telemedicine unit to just sort of like, here's the black box, here's the way it works, this is not so scary, we're normal human beings here. Those are the kind of things that engender the kind of frequent use that supported effective use. Yeah, I thought that was interesting on two fronts. One is I have this vision of telemedicine being particularly effective when it's doing it at a distance. And I know that that's certainly not the only model. There's lots of places where it's all in the same city even. But it seemed logistically more challenging when people were, you know, I'm in Seattle at the UW and I think of whammy, right? It wouldn't be so easy to go to Alaska if you had a a telemedicine program there. So while I get that, it seems like there are some limitations in being able to do that. I get the concept. The other thing that struck me is, again, this is my bias and programs that I've seen. It feels like a lot of telemedicine programs rely on people doing one or two shifts a month. And it seemed like maybe some of these programs had a more kind of core telemedicine staff, faculty and staff, that were more regular presences, and that helped with those concepts of trust and integration. Was that the case, that there are some programs oh, yeah. that have a more core staff? Spot on. on. Like, that's that's exactly right. I think that um, it sort of speaks to two issues. You know, to the first issue you mentioned, we we were both surprised and a bit concerned when we saw this finding of how the, the lengths successful programs go to put in FaceTime, true FaceTime, because this is a barrier because we do perceive telemedicine as, you know, its benefit is across large geographic distances. And this is going to mean, I think, it's, it's going to, um, if not harm, impede further adoption in these really small geographically remote areas. Uh, which is concerning because it implies that it's going to be most effective, you know, in these larger urban areas, which was a bit concerning. I I think you're totally right about this value of, um, you know, having a core group of providers who are going to, again, more likely to be consistent, more likely to develop 
trust and interpersonal relationships over time, which is one of the other major findings that we saw is that developing these core relationships were really, really helpful. And it also speaks to the notion that this is a learned skill, right? Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that your medical training was like mine, which is nobody taught me how to interact across a computer screen, right? We had a lot of in-person communication training, but, but talking to someone over a computer screen is not um, an automatic skill, right? You get better over I time. There's probably agree. some key elements. You know that makes it better. I can tell you, having a conversation with my mother over Skype is really painful. <laughs> she's, she's not good at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's the way we're going to learn how to do it. But I agree with you that there's a skill set, and probably like with all skill sets, we should teach to it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can almost envision a way that training programs can build off our results by anticipating this need and saying, "Look, if we want to develop a core group of telemedicine providers, we need to train them during fellowship on." how to do this in these best practices, and then, you know, tell, uh, I hate to create another specialty of intensive care, but <laughs> at least having telecritical care be considered, you know, a, a skill and not just something anyone can do because they're, just because you're a good bedside intensivist, you're also going to be a good tele-intensivist. I think the data don't bear that out. I think the interesting thing about that is I also think that a lot of people feel like, you know, I talked to a lot of junior faculty when they're first taking a job, and they're like, Oh, and then I have two telemedicine shifts a month or oh, I have to do a week of telemedicine and it's considered um, service, I would say, a lot of the time to a program. Um, you could imagine, though, if you taught people skills and there was some relationships, it could actually be a more gratifying part of one's job. I mean, the part about working at night still is challenging for many of us, but if you knew if you had built a skill set and you felt you had some expertise and you started to know the people on the other side, you might like it more and thus be more invested in it as well. So you could see some benefits for both sides on that. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's also just hard, right? Like when I used to do it, you know, I can't really do anything for 12 hours, let alone sit in front of a computer screen. Um, It's boring. And so Creating integration helps that. It helps keep providers engaged. And it's this notion of if you believe you're doing something well, you develop that sort of role identity. You know, in, in the world of organizational science, the idea of role identity is important. And if you believe you're positively impacting care in a way that is uniquely suited to your skill set, that is a recipe for a long career. And as opposed to the alternative, whereas, you know, you said sometimes it's viewed as moonlighting or... Mm-hmm. a service that you have to do one or two times a month, that is not a recipe for a long-term career. That creates, and what we saw in our study, though, is that those kind of, you know, once you have that one person, let's say you have a cohort of, you know, 15 docs who do this, and nurses, because this is an interprofessional intervention. Because of the consistency finding, right, if you have one bad egg, it's going to poison the whole well. If you have one doc who shows up and, and phones it in, literally and figuratively, <laughs> then, yep. you know, they're all phoning it in literally, <laughs> but one person yep. figuratively, then it's just going to sour that, yeah. the whole the whole service and the frontline providers won't call anymore. And that's how you end up with these ineffective programs. Yeah. And I think that message is actually really important for organizational leaders or design folks. And it's intuitive in a way, but I think it's it's reinforcing to see it in the in the results of your study. 
which raises the last question I'm going to ask you about, which is kind of what next. So in your discussion, you talk about how this kind of informs and goes beyond what's, what are in kind of guidelines from national organizations about telemedicine programs. I think of qualitative research as generally being hypothesis generating to study further. I'm curious kind of what you think are the next steps after this. Yeah, I think there's there's two. What, one is you're right in many ways. The theory that we developed here around telemedicine effectiveness does yet need to be validated, and that can be validated in several ways. It can be more qualitative research that looks in different settings. That would be really hard. You know, this survey was, or this project rather, was just a massive lift. As mm-hmm. you can imagine. I mean, we were flying across the country. These programs are in. You know, I'm going to keep our sites confidential, but let's just say they're not in. You know, thriving metropolises typically they're in rural areas because that's what you know where telemedicine is used. Yeah. So the um, you know the I think by the end of the study, my my medical anthropologist and my study staff were were quite done to be flying around <laughs> the country. So, but quantitatively, there is some room for validation, and we're currently doing that now. This is actually the last aim of our um, NIH-funded study is to survey existing telemedicine sites and, and survey them specifically asking about these constructs, things like consistency and integration and perceived value and how they use all these organizational characteristics, and then more definitively link these characteristics to outcome uh, using risk-adjusted data, so a little bit more in my wheelhouse or quantitative research. So so that's going on, and we're in the process of of actually launching that survey, and we're really excited about it. Um, And I think everyone will be interested to see what that shows, because that would be really powerful in terms of affirming. It might bear out some of these ideas, and it might sort of say others are are less important, um, and we're prepared for all of those. Um, And at the same time, though, we, we do want our results to be actionable. And while we're developing that survey, you know, the, the answer can always be more research, but at some point you just got to stand down and do something about it. We, we think the time is ripe for a, a, a more rigorous and robust set of implementation guidelines. What we're calling this is sort of a roadmap for implementation, meaning that if you want to start a telemedicine program, an ICU telemedicine program, that there is a framework, a published framework for how to do it and where to do it. That offers very specific guidance. And I think we're ready to start that. I think the way that's got to come out is likely out of the professional societies, like the American Thoracic Society. You know, that's sort of one of the great services they provide is publishing these sort of guidelines and frameworks. And there's other critical care societies as well that could get together and um, develop this implementation roadmap. Uh, The the instruction sheet, if you will, for doing it right. And when those are published, then we can disseminate those to clinicians around the country and, you know, I think immediately start improving the way I see telemedicine is utilized. I think we're there. And it's useful to mention that this whole project actually started with a gathering of the Critical Care Society's collaborators, um, the four major critical care professional societies. Mm -hmm. Almost a decade ago now, we did a um, consensus conference that that was called the Research Agenda in ICU Telemedicine, and it's at that consensus conference where we got a bunch of community leaders and academicians and others together 
that we even got the idea to do this study. And it would be kind of neat to see it all come full circle for the Critical Care Society to sort of get together again and develop this implementation, you know, roadmap. Yeah, blueprint for, for design. I, it makes sense. I think it would be interesting to study if places, if that actually happened and then people use that, what becomes of those programs? Um, because I do think that there's more granular guidance that you can create from what you guys found in the study than what we've had as kind of broad strokes and guidance in the past. So I think it would be interesting to say, like, if we can give you more, if we can give you a better structure or a better roadmap to implementation, what happens on the other side? Does that work? <laughs> Does, yeah, you know, that would be better program. My absolute dream would be to sort of evaluate the guideline or the roadmap in a, yeah. in a sort of cluster RCT. Um, the other the other point I just want to raise is that we have we're also sitting on a treasure trove of data, right? Meaning that there's more data in in there's more studies to do in the qualitative data that we've collected that we uh-huh. find really fascinating. Some of the key themes that we didn't even explore in the study, but we want we're going to be exploring. Soon, one is related to burnout, right? Like a lot of people view telemedicine as a as a potential um, fix for the burnout crisis because it can improve longevity. You know, sitting in front of a computer is sort of easier than being at the bedside, and feeling supported through telemedicine can help burnout. And so we have we're going to definitely look at the burnout stuff because a lot of providers did articulate that there's ways in which they're using IC telemedicine to prevent burnout. And then this notion of end-of-life care we're really interested in describing because there are a couple reports in the literature of improving the quality of end-of-life care um, using telemedicine, sort of telepalliative care in the ICU, and we did see some examples of that, and we hope to sort of describe those and put those out there. Oh, I think both of those sound really interesting. Obviously, burnout is a huge issue right now. And if telemedicine really did impact it, that would be very, you know, I think, and how would be very powerful. Um, and I look forward to reading what you end up publishing on both of those topics, endo-life care and the burnout aspects. Um, so more to come from you on this topic, from this study and beyond. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you about the article today. I think that the listeners will enjoy hearing all of your perspectives. I don't know if you have any last words that you want to say before we wrap up. Um, I certainly learned from from all we all, all we talked about, and like I said, I look forward to to the next steps on all of this. Yeah, I just want to thank you, and I hope the readers of the Blue Journal appreciate um, a different kind of research study, a qualitative research study, and and can help them, uh, all of us sort of believe in the value of qualitative research as a way to understand ICU delivery and healthcare delivery system at large. It really is an honor to have the study published in Blue and uh, a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. And I, I really, I like your message too. It's one of the reasons I chose to highlight it in a podcast because I think there's so much richness to be gained from this qualitative research. Um, if you're interested and you want to read the article, that we discussed today, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. I encourage you to do so. If you want to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day. 